Welcome to the April 2nd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and my desire is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, we have four chapters that we are reading in Scripture, three in the Old, one in the New Testament. But I'm telling you, these four chapters are filled with stuff, so I'm going to try to use an economy of words, but uh, but it's going to be difficult this morning or today, so let's just give this a try. The readings are Judges chapter 16 through 18 and Luke chapter 7. Uh, once again, that's Judges 16 through 18 and Luke chapter 7. So if you've not read that, please hit pause, go back, read God's word for yourself and listen to what he would say to you and then consider coming back to listen to what I've got to say. But if you've already read those chapters, let's get started. Judges chapter 16, in this chapter, we have the life and the death of Samson. Um, And I just want to deal with uh, one of the big themes that shows up in the life of Samson. But let's begin with just a couple of verses. In Judges 16, verse 1, it says, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and went to bed with her. Okay, so we've got a chapter that starts off with this guy doing something that we wouldn't dare watch on a television screen. We wouldn't want to read this book. We certainly wouldn't want our kids to to read about this. A guy that went to a prostitute and he's having sex with her. And to beat it all, this guy has had a previous marriage and uh, you know he just—it was a rocky marriage. We read about that. We, uh, you know, I talked about it in the last podcast where he just had a temper, where he even left her, and then he went back to get her. And uh, you know, her dad had married her off to somebody else, and so he flies into a rage. And so now the next chapter starts with him going to a prostitute and going to bed with her. In four verse, actually in three verses, when we get to verse four, Judges sixteen four, it says, "Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in in the Sorek Valley." So this is the third woman. But the only thing is, when the Scripture speaks, it tells us authoritatively what is true, but it doesn't necessarily have all of the truth. So the scripture tells us that there were three women, one woman that he married in a previous chapter, then there was a prostitute, and then there was Delilah. But, uh, I mean, for all we know, there could have been other women that the writer of the scripture just didn't see fit to write into this story. But one of the things we clearly see is Samson was an adulterer at heart. He was a man who had a temper, and he was an adulterer at heart, both of which are grievous to the Lord. So this is a big point that I want to bring out with the person of Samson. When I heard the story of Samson as a little kid in Sunday school, I'm telling you, my teachers really cleaned him up <laughs> when they were telling the story to us us kids. They talked about Samson's amazing strength and how God used him to punish the Philistines, and so he was presented as a good hero. Um And I'm telling you that there is some necessity to clean some of the stories up, to make them presentable to children, right? Because there are things in Scripture that are true and people that are mature need to read them and understand them. But there are certain things that, you know, we need to kind of 
teach at an age-appropriate level, you know, so that the kids can understand it and process it. And so I think that my teachers were doing a, a good job by kind of cleaning them up a little bit when they shared it with me. But I'm telling you um, that I grew up thinking Samson was a good guy. That is how it played out in real time. I think it was appropriate for them to kind of clean him up and tell little kids the story of Samson. But, uh, you know, I grew up thinking Samson was a pretty good guy, but he wasn't. <laughs> the fact that Samson was used by God, and this is the point, does not validate Samson's lifestyle. Instead, it highlights God's grace. That is a point that I see when I look at Samson. God's use of Samson, say it again, does not validate, did not validate his lifestyle. Instead, it highlighted God's grace. I'm telling you that I'm making that distinction because there are oftentimes people that, uh, you know, experience some good things in their life and they interpret those things as blessings from God. And then they further interpret that as, well, since God is blessing me, I must be living a good life. I'm telling you the story of Samson shoots a huge torpedo into that enemy ship. It is not true that blessings are a moral judgment on our behavior. Because we see in Samson's life that God blessed him to some extent, and God certainly used him, but it was not because Samson was good. Samson had a wicked heart that at least was filled with adultery and was capable of rage just at any moment's notice. Uh, a verse that came to mind whenever I was thinking about this theme was a, a passage that we read through in Deuteronomy not too long ago. And the Lord was very clear to the Israelites, and he was saying, I want you to know that as you go in to take the promised land, I don't want you to think that because I'm blessing you with victories, that it's because you're good. It's not because you're good. It's because they're evil. L listen to what, what uh, he says, the Lord says in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6. It says, when the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness, right? They're making a moral judgment. God said through Moses, I know you're going to make a moral judgment. Whenever I give you the victory and I give you the land, you're going to say it's because, you know, I'm affirming of your righteousness. But then verse four continues, Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. And so I just feel the need to bring that point out as we're looking at Samson, that some people erroneously think, and, and maybe you and I tend to think that way from time to time, that God is blessing me, and maybe it's not even God's blessings. Maybe it's just common grace. Maybe God's just throwing goodness out, and we happen to be a recipient of it, so it's not specific to us. But when good things happen to us, we need to be so careful as to interpret whether or not it genuinely is God's blessings. And if we do believe that it's God's blessings, then we need to also realize it is a false claim to say that God is blessing me because of my goodness. So therefore, I must be good. I must be righteous. I'm telling you that that's not 
that's not taught in Scripture as a way that we can determine if we're living right. Uh, I'm telling you that there are people who I know, and I, I'm I'm a sinner too, I'm a struggler too, but I'm just telling you that there are some people that I have spoken with before and they have been involved in egregious sin, and yet they said it must not be that big of a deal because God's blessing me. Please hear the story of Samson. Just because God uses us, just because God blesses us, is not an affirmation of our righteousness. We need to be pursuing righteousness, but God in His grace can and often does use anybody He wants to. Uh, whenever you get to the last bit, we realize you know Delilah was tempting uh, Samson, trying to find out the secret of his strength. Well, what was her motivation? Well, verse five tells us eleven hundred pieces of silver. You know she didn't care about him; she cared about her pocketbook. And relationships are built on trust, so be very careful who you befriend. Um, he shared a secret. She told the uh, those that wanted to know this. Uh, and in fact, the breaking of uh, the cutting of his hair was the breaking of a Nazarite vow. You know, remember he was a Nazarite from birth, and so cutting his hair was breaking the Nazarite vow. So he would have lost his strength. The spirit was not coming on him. And so, as one last act, one last act, as he was yielding up his life, in fact, committing suicide. This is what he did. Suicide is bringing about your own death, is actively bringing about your own death. And this is what Samson did. He ended his life with suicide, but he intended, as he was killing himself, to kill as many Philistines as possible. And so we read in Judges 16.30, and those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed in his life. I'm just just realize that Samson was not a good person. The reason God used him, the reason God blessed him with some effectiveness was because God is gracious, not because Samson was good. And the other thing that I touched on in a previous podcast is when you read that the Spirit came on him, realize that that also is not an affirmation of lifestyle. That is simply in the Old Testament. God's Spirit did not indwell people like he does now in the New Testament. You know, if you're saved, the Holy Spirit is in you, and He is going to stay in you until you step through death's door and you are in the presence of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Spirit did not do that. In the Old Testament, He went on to people, and quite often, He would leave people. He would only empower them to do what God had called or desired for that person to do, so the Spirit empowered them. So just realize that Samson was a worldly adulterer with a temper, but it was God's grace that enabled God to use him. Blessings are not a moral judgment on whether or not we are living righteously. Judges 17, it gets even more bizarre. Uh, again, remember, and in fact, in Judges 17, we read a verse that shows up twice that seems to be the theme of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so there was no leader, and there was no spiritual leader, certainly. The judges were sent in, but oftentimes we realize, like Samson, these people were not good people. They were not good moral people. 
And so in the absence of good moral leadership, godly leadership, in the absence of uh, you know structure and accountability for bad decisions, then people are quite capable, all of us are quite capable of doing any number of things that are not right. And so it gets even more bizarre in Judges 17. We read about a man who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. So, you know, if if our minds are still fresh from Judges 16, we realize that Delilah got 1,100 pieces of silver for betraying Samson. And so was this Delilah? We're not told, but I just wonder if this was Delilah uh, that, uh, you know, had a a son steal 1,100 pieces. She placed a curse on that, uh, that stolen wealth, maybe even upon the one that took it. And so her son came back to her, her grown son came back to her and confessed and returned it. And uh, so this gets even uh, crazier. Um, as so many stories in the book of Judges do, we realize we read in verses 3 and 4 that he returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord. So she's talking about the Lord. I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit to make a carved image and a silver idol. Really? <laughs> in in the same sentence, she's talking about consecrating something to the Lord in the same sentence as she is going to violate the first two greatest commandments. By having some other God before him, she's going to make a, a graven image. I will give it back to you. Give that this, I don't, this graven image back to you. So she was going to take some of it, five pounds of it, and have it sent off to a silversmith, turned into an idol, and then give it back to this son. And that's exactly what happened. Do you know what this is called? It's called syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is the taking of at least two different belief systems or two religions. It's taking at least two and mixing them together. It's like taking, you know, water and flour, two different things, and putting it into a bowl and stirring it up so that you've got something that's very different than the water and the flour. It's 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 a very different substance. Two things creating something different. And that's what syncretism is. Syncretism is taking, for instance, taking a belief in the Lord and a belief in Scripture and that sort of thing, but taking something from a worldly system, a worldly philosophy, or taking something from another religion and mixing it into Christianity. And what you have is not a watered-down Christianity. What you have is something that is not Christianity at all. And so that's what she is involved in, syncretism, consecrating something to the Lord and yet making idols. This is not biblical. Uh, uh, she is not a biblical God follower um, because this is this is a whole different thing other than the, the religion that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob knew. Well, Micah put this idol in his house and made one of his own sons his priest. And so this is just bizarre. Uh, in Judges 17.6, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that was right in his own eyes. Well, no kidding. That's exactly what's going on. And then we read in this chapter that a wandering Levite came to Micah. And after conversation, Micah made the Levite his own household priest. He's thinking, hey, you know, my son, he's not a Levite. Um, I am going to have this Levite be my own personal priest. Well, there was, there was no allowance for this in the Mosaic Law. None in the Torah. And so this guy's just making up his own rules, which I'm telling you, 
I'm telling you the reason why I'm doing this podcast, the reason why I teach while I preach is because in the absence of so many Christians spending time in God's Word, it's not like they don't have opinions and convictions. They just don't know what the Bible says, and so they make it up. They make it up. A lot of the things that Christians believe and they're convicted about are nowhere to be found in, in Scripture. In fact, some of those things are completely unbiblical. And so that's what we see going on here. This guy's just making up the rules. He just, hey, you, Levite, I'm going to make you my priest. There's no provision for that in the Old Testament law of Moses. And... Uh, so uh, this is why we have got to be students of God's Word so that we not only know what it says, but even as I say at the very beginning of every single episode, I want us to understand God's Word, but I don't want us just to understand it. I want us to enjoy it. Because if you enjoy something, you're going to keep going back to it, right? If you understand it, but you don't enjoy it, then you're going to fall away. But if you understand it and enjoy it, well, you, you're going to wake up each morning wanting to spend time in God's Word, but it's not for the purpose just of gaining knowledge and filling our hearts with joy. It's so that, as I continue to say every single podcast, so that we can apply God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's always about application. It's about coming to know the one who wrote this book, and it's about living the life that he's called us to live. And so that's why I'm doing this podcast. That's why I'm telling you, y'all are so encouraging as you're taking this journey with me, because in the absence of people who know God's word, we don't live without conviction. No, we have convictions. We just make them up, much like this guy did in Judges 17. Judges 18, uh, this is where we're, we're introduced in, in the story, we're introduced to the tribe of Dan, and that they had been unfaithful and that they had not yet conquered their territory, so we're told that they sent out five men to explore the area, and they arrived at Micah's house, and they talked with the Levite, they saw the gods, the idols, and so they went back to their tribe to report their findings, and as a result of them looking at some of the cities within in the territory of Dan, uh, they said, man, they're unsuspecting. We can easily take them. And so 600 men of Dan went out to attack them, but they stopped by, they took a pit stop, you know, stopped at a rest area at Micah's house. And what they did is the 600 men stood outside of the city gate and the five went in uh, to Micah's house and they forcibly took his objects of pagan worship from his house and they invited the Levite to go with them to be their priest by just luring him and tapping into his ego. They said, you know, would you rather just serve, be a priest to one man, or would you rather serve 600 men? Would you rather do what you're doing for more people or for just one? Well, they tapped into his ego. Of course, bigger is always better in the fleshly mind. And so he chose to go along with them. And so they went and they attacked um they went toward these cities where they were going to attack them, but uh, Micah and some of his men caught up to him, and they questioned, why did you take my idols? Uh, why did you uh, you know, take uh, my Levite? And the Danites threatened him, said, you know what, if, if you don't leave us alone, you're not going to be able to argue with anybody else after today. Uh, and so he left. He just went back. He went back sad because he didn't have his pagan idols and he didn't have his false priest. 
But when the Danites destroyed the cities, I can only imagine that they assumed that it was because they had a Levite priest with them and because they had the idols with them, right? Um, it, it was this whole thing of our... <sighs> People tend to be superstitious if we're not careful. And when something good happens, sometimes we credit that goodness to something that is um, that that was just a part of the experience but had nothing to do with it. That's why some people, I don't know of anybody that really does it anymore, but, you know, I mean, not too many years ago, we heard of people carrying rabbit's feet in their you know, in their pocket or in their purse or, I mean, any number of things. Now, a lot of baseball players, they tend to be kind of superstitious and, you know, they always kiss that cross or whatever else before they get up to the plate. Um, superstition. Well, they apparently believed that um, the uh, the idols and the Levite priests were what helped them to defeat those cities. And so the chapter ends with them setting up those idols to worship. Luke chapter 7, in verses 1 through 10, we uh, read about a centurion, a Roman centurion who was either in or near Capernaum. And we read that he had a servant that was dying and he heard about Jesus. And so what he did is we read in verse 3 through 5 that it says this, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him. So this Roman centurion who was an occupying force had built such a relationship with the Jews there in Capernaum that he was able to ask them to go to Jesus on his behalf. He asked some of the elders to go on his behalf, and they willingly did it. He, he didn't coerce them. Uh, he had been such a good man there in their city. In fact, building their synagogue that these elders are going to bring up, that these Jewish elders willingly went to Jesus. Boy, this talks about the importance of building relationships, that in a time of need, that sometimes those relationships can come in very, very handy. Um, and not to use those relationships, but just to benefit from investing in and caring for other people that whenever you're in need, that many times they'll step up to help you. So in Luke 7, 3 through 5, it says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. And when they reached Jesus, and I believe Matthew, when Matthew tells us that it appears that the centurion went, but uh, but what Matthew is doing is simply saying the centurion is the one who his words were what was being conveyed. Uh, so it really was the centurion that through these elders was speaking to Jesus. And so there is no inconsistency. It's just Matthew saw that the elders were just ambassadors of the true one that was wanting to talk to Jesus, and that was the centurion. So when they, the elders, reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. So it's not like they said, hey, Jesus... We got some Roman occupier. He's a centurion in our area, and we don't care much about No, they're not doing that. They pleaded with him. Once again, this speaks of relationship, that this centurion must have been a very good and kind guy. And they pleaded earnestly with him, saying, he's worthy for you to grant this, and then listen to their basis. Because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue, a lot of the Romans couldn't stand Israel. They could not stand Israel. They couldn't stand the Israelites. They looked down on them as dogs and as scum. And they said, this guy's different. He, he really loves our nation. And he built us a synagogue. 
in Capernaum right now. It's just a bunch of ruins, uh, but there in Capernaum, uh, and I've been there, Kim and I went there a few years ago, there's a synagogue that is built, but it looks like that synagogue was built at a later time, and they say that the black stone rock that is the foundation of that synagogue, that, you know, if you were to type in synagogue in Capernaum, you would see the nice kind of white stone. Well, it's under there, the foundation, the black stone, it is charcoal black, that, uh, that they believe could be the synagogue that this man built. Uh, that that synagogue was con was torn down, and then on that, they used it as a foundation to build this other one. Um, but they said, this guy even built us a synagogue, so whether he did it out of his own resources or used Roman monies to build this, this man was endearing himself to these people. So Jesus heard about this, and so he was going toward Capernaum. After all, he knew somebody that lived there. He knew Peter. Peter lived in Capernaum. Andrew, I think, lived in Capernaum. I think James and John either lived in or near Capernaum. And so he was going to Capernaum because he had friends there. Uh, and, uh, you know, his, his disciples would have been looking forward to seeing family again. Uh, and uh, so the, 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 uh, the Roman centurion heard that Jesus was coming. So he sent more messengers and said, Jesus, I'm not worthy that you would come to my house. So we realized this guy's humble. You know, he's very humble and saying, Jesus, I am not worthy for you to come into my house. Um, in fact, he probably would have been aware of the fact that if Jews were to go into a Gentile dwelling, that would render them unclean. And this man did not want Jesus to do that to himself. He said, you know what? I'm a man over authority and under authority. And I know what it's like to send people out and they do the things for you. I know what that's like to have people that are under you. And Jesus, I know that you can do the same thing. What he was saying was, is Jesus, you don't actually have to come here. I'm sending a delegation to you. You can send the miracle to me. And so Jesus was just amazed. <laughs> he was amazed, you know. Jesus realized there was a Roman centurion that didn't re that realized that Jesus didn't have to put his hand on him or have to be there in the locale. That that this man realized that Jesus could just speak the word from a distance and his servant would be healed. And Jesus in verses nine and ten said. Um, it says that Jesus heard this and was amazed at him and turned to the crowd following him and said, I tell you, I've not found so great a faith even in Israel. Oh boy, that was a stick in their eye. Jesus was saying, these Gentiles are demonstrating more faith than even the people of Israel. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Um, wow, this is just a, such a wonderful, wonderful, rich story that that really we could we could camp out on and spend a whole hour on just enjoying it. But we've got to move on. In verses eleven through seventeen, we read about a widow. Uh, she is a widow because she has no husband. Her husband has died. Then we're told in verses eleven through seventeen that her only son has now died, and he's in a casket and he's being carried out of the the city of Nain, and her world has been turned upside down. She has no man now in her life, at least that we know of, that could help her. So she was going to be out on the streets. So she was not only mourning the loss of her son, the grievous loss of her son, but she realized she had absolutely no future now. No financial future, no future at all. And so Jesus 
is walking up to the town even as they're coming out. And Jesus looked at her and looked at the crowd, but he looked at her and he saw her. And in verse 13, it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. I mean, Jesus doesn't just do good stuff. He cares for you and me. He loves us. When he sees us weeping, he genuinely cares for us. And if you think that Jesus behaved differently on earth than you do in heaven, I think you really miss out. When you see Jesus weeping on earth in John eleven thirty five, 35, when the people there at Lazarus' tomb were weeping, but if you think that Jesus doesn't weep now, I think you miss out on an emotional aspect of the Godhead, the Trinity, that could be such a source of blessing to you and to me. Um, and so the compassion that Jesus had on her, I think when Jesus looks and sees us weeping because something is going on, I believe he has deep compassion and in heaven still may weep out of love. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. Don't cry. Please stop crying. That's, that's what he was saying. And then he came up and touched the open coffin. Whoops. Jesus declared, J Jesus just rendered himself unclean. He touched the coffin. He didn't have to touch the coffin, but he just made it clear. I don't care about my own well-being. I care about people. He touched the coffin and the pallbearer stopped. And he said, young man, I tell you, get up. And the man that was laying in the casket sat up and the pallbearers dropped the casket and ran. Now, I made up that last part, but I can only imagine that uh, they would have struggled to hold on to that casket when that dead body came to life. In verses 18 through 30, we have uh, John the Baptist and uh, we read in verses 18 and 19, it says, Then John the Baptist's disciples, or then John's disciples, told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? What's going on here? I mean... John's parents understood clearly, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they understood clearly from the angel that he was the forerunner to the Messiah. Elizabeth and Mary uh, spent time together during Mary's final months of pregnancy. Um, and uh, they spent months together, and it was very clear that Elizabeth was carrying the forerunner, the one who would come in the spirit of Elijah, and Mary was carrying the Messiah. There was no doubt at all. In fact, at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, he looked at Jesus, he saw Jesus while John was baptizing, and he yelled at the top of his lungs, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world! So what in the world is John, as he's in prison, what is he doing? What is he saying when he sends two disciples and says, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Are you the Messiah or are you not? Is he doubting? I don't think he is. I think John is discouraged. I think he is deeply discouraged. And if you don't think Christians can get discouraged, it is because, one, you haven't read the scripture to realize that the Apostle Paul had some times of discouragement. Uh, you haven't read of Elijah, who after the you know he was there on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, he went and he just sat under a, a tree and just moped because... Uh, uh, Jezebel threatened to kill him, and he just went and just moped. Um, 
it's it's discouragement sometimes happens especially and they and some people have called it the elijah syndrome especially after god does something wonderful in your life or in the life of something that you were a part of the life of your church or or whatever god does something wonderful and it goes on for a little bit of time then one of the things you can take to the bank is your emotional um well-being is going to try to find its equilibrium again and after that high in order to go back down to the low sometimes it goes lower before it comes back up and so sometimes right after the wonderful times when god is blessed don't be surprised if you do not battle with discouragement and so john the baptist was discouraged he was in jail he was probably thinking this is not how i thought it was going to play out i'm his forerunner and here I am in jail, and it looks like I'm about to die. Jesus, please remind me again that you are the Messiah. And so when you read this text in verses 18 through 30, the disciples went to Jesus, and they just relayed to John what... Uh, what he had asked of Jesus. And I can only imagine that their eyes also were sad because they saw the, the discouragement in John's eyes and they hated that this was happening to him. Someone who was just such a fiery example of standing up for truth is now discouraged in prison. So when you read Jesus' words, Jesus begins with answering. Uh, when you read Jesus' words, you realize that Jesus was saying, okay, go back and tell John what you see. The blind see and the lame are walking and the dead are raised to life. What's Jesus doing? He's saying, John knows the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and he knows that these are the things that the Messiah is going to do. So go back and tell him that I'm doing the things that the Old Testament said the Messiah was supposed to do as a validation of the fact that I am the Messiah. I could easily just say I'm the Messiah, but I want you to see the works. I want you to see the works and go back to him and tell him what you see so that he would be able to say, yep, that's him because that's what the Old Testament said he was going to do. But then as the disciples leave to go back to John, Jesus isn't finished. And remember, Jesus is not talking quietly. He's probably outside, so he's having to yell. He has no microphone or anything like that, so he's yelling, talking loudly so that everybody can hear him. And whenever he's talking, as the disciples are going away, Jesus has just answered their question, but now he's going to encourage them and give them words of encouragement for John. In verses 26 through 28, it says, What then did you go out to see? You know, talking about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, those born among women, nobody is greater than John. And then he talks a little bit more. But I'm telling you, he is not answering John's question. He is now encouraging John's heart. And this is what Jesus delights to do. He doesn't want to just answer our questions. If we're discouraged, he wants to give us a message to encourage our heart. And there is so much encouragement to be had on the pages of Scripture. In verses 31 through 35, uh, we, Jesus is just expressing his frustration with that generation. Uh, basically, he's saying, no matter what we do, you are not responding. John was serious, and he was even a bit rigid, and he was calling you to repentance, and you didn't respond to him. And now I, my ministry, is characterized by joy and happiness, and you're not responding to me. 
In fact, this is actually what he says in Luke 7, 33-34. For John the Baptist did not come eating, drinking, eating bread or drinking wine, and you said, he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Basically, no matter how God's word was presented to them, they weren't coming, and Jesus was frustrated. Now, once again, God, does God ever get frustrated? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Uh, there are times whenever in the Old Testament God speaks and it sounds as if he's frustrated, but God experiences emotions very differently than you and I do. Very differently than you and I do. But when Jesus was here, he was living his life out as fully man. Is frustration a sin? I don't think so necessarily. And so was it possible that Jesus literally was frustrated with that generation? Yes, I think so. In verses 36 through 50, as this chapter comes to an end, uh, Jesus is with some Pharisees in Galilee. He's invited to a Pharisee's home to have a meal. Many Pharisees are there. And a woman comes in and it says, who is a sinner? Uh, just about any commentary you look at is going to say, oh yeah, when it says a woman who is a sinner, that's saying she was a prostitute. So a woman who was a sinner wash, was came in and washed Jesus' feet. She was weeping and her tears were the, causing a, the pool of water that she was using to wash his feet. And then she would use uh, perfume to anoint his feet, to make them smell better, you know, because feet in sandals walking around all day would smell very, very stinky. And so she was just cleaning his feet. This was a way that she was showing her humility before him. Uh, just as a servant would be the one who would wash feet whenever they came into a, a respectable person's house, nobody did that when Jesus stepped in. And so this woman, this prostitute, I think former prostitute, came in and did the job of a menial slave, demonstrating her gratitude to Jesus and her humility before Jesus. The Pharisees were indignant and said, you know what, if he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is doing this. Luke chapter 7, verses 40 and 43, Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you, and this is public. He said, say it, teacher. And then Jesus talks. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. So that's a denarii was roughly a common person's day's wage. So this is 500. 100 days of working for a common laborer. So we're talking roughly a year and a half's wages of a, a common laborer. And the other 50. Okay, so now we're talking about someone who owes, uh, what, a month and a half of, uh, you know, debt. Someone owes a year and a half and someone owes a month and a half. Since they could not pay it back, Jesus continued, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly, Jesus told him. The message Jesus was giving was that the Pharisees did not feel as if they had a debt of sin to be forgiven, and so there was no need for them to feel grateful to God, to Jesus, for forgiving their sin, so there was no gratitude to Jesus at all, only condemnation. But this woman, who, a former prostitute, 
had been forgiven. She'd been forgiven so much and she felt the weight of her sin and she felt the graciousness and overwhelming nature of the forgiveness. So therefore she was motivated to thank the Lord very, very, very much. I'm telling you, this is a principle that if we are not motivated to thank the Lord for who he is, for the blessings that he sends our way, for the forgiveness that he offers us, not just at the point of salvation, but the daily cleansing when we go to him. If we do not feel grateful to him and delight to serve him out of gratitude, then it's because we really don't think we're that bad of a sinner. Jesus said that if you want to experience a great deal of gratitude, then you've got to realize that he has forgiven us an enormous amount of sin. That while we may not think our sin is that serious, our sin is so serious that he had to die on the cross to pay our sin debt. And so when we come to realize how much we have been forgiven, we're going to love him more. Do you want to love Jesus? Well, begin with realizing how good and gracious he is. Then look at yourself and see how sinful you tend to be and how sinful you, more sinful you would be if it were not for him restraining you. And then let that move you to praise him, humbly praise him and thank him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we do thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy and all of those things and more, your patience with us. Lord, thank you. And Lord, I pray that if we do not have an attitude of gratitude, if we genuinely do not feel a desire, a compulsion to express our gratitude to you, then help us to realize that that may be a telltale sign that we are not feeling the weight of our sin. Lord, help us to feel the weight of our sin, to then look to you to realize that you have unconditionally forgiven us of that and declared us righteous. And as we come into that experience, that then we will want to thank you, not just one time, but just throughout the rest of our life to express our gratitude to you for all that you have done for us. You are so good to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we got through this episode a little bit more quickly than I was thinking we would, so I'm glad we were able to do this, but there may still be unanswered questions or maybe clarifications on your part, so always feel free to hop on over to the Facebook group page and post your comments, your reflections, your questions, and love looking at those. I hope you all have a good rest of the day, and I'm looking forward to spending time with you again tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.